The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Corey Robin. We spoke about his recent article for Dissent magazine, The Obamanauts, What is the Defining Achievement of Barack Obama? As always, you can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping the show to find new listeners. Corey Robin is a professor of political science at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Centre. He's the author of Fear, the History of a Political Idea and The Reactionary Mind, Conservatism from Edmund Burke to Donald Trump, which we discussed in episode 42. His essays and reviews have appeared in The New York Times, The New Yorker, Harper's, The New Republic, and the London Review of Books, amongst other venues. So for this article that you wrote for Dissent, you wrote about these seven memoirs from various White House staffers during the Obama presidency and and also Brian Abrams's oral history of the Obama years. First off, it kind of feels like the left owes you a bit of a debt of gratitude, uh, (laughs) you know, for plowing through these books, because, you know, the article's great. It didn't leave me with any, you know, the slightest inclination to, to read any of these books. So, I mean, what led you to choosing to do this and, and how did you find immersing yourself in this, you know, quite niche uh, literature? <laughs> so uh, it was actually the editor of Descent, Tim Shank, mm. about uh, a year and a half ago, just sent me an email and uh, saying, would you like to do this? There's all these <laughs> memoirs. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's kind of an object lesson, actually, for editors and writers who are out there listening that... You know, these days I've just been turning down almost everything in terms of writing offers only because just between teaching and finishing my book, it's just been so busy. And, Mm. you know, these things take a long time. But honestly, when he approached me with that, I kind of jumped at it because to me, it Mm. seemed like such a sort of intriguing idea. You know, I watched the Obama administration from the outside and I've feel like I've spent most of my time over the last however many years in the kind of the inside of the right in conservatism. Mm. So I, I just thought, you know, to kind of get a real sense of the, you know, the, the actual inner mind of the Obama administration was going to be pretty exciting. And I mean, mm. I, I did not anticipate a lot of what ended up being in those memoirs. I think I had a very different expectation going in. But anyway, so that was that was really the impetus for us was just a request from an editor and it just seemed like too good a project to turn down. And I mean, when you say these memoirs weren't what you expected, what was it that you were expecting? Because I mean, one of the things that seems to come across in the article is a sort of surprising lack of seriousness in, the, in these uh, these books. Well, that was the surprise was exactly that. I think mm. I was really expecting much more dense discussions of policy. I really thought I was going to get 
the kind of the anatomy of the kind of the deep technocratic wonkery of the Obama administration. I was especially interested in a couple of issues. One was the healthcare, the whole healthcare question, Obamacare, and the other was the debt and how the, the politics of debt had played out. And aside really from Brian Abrams's oral history, which I really would recommend to, to everyone, I, I think it's just a fantastic resource hmm. on you know the, the machinations and the negotiations and how various people in the Obama inside the Obama and outside the Obama administration thought about things. But aside from that one, there was just a stunning lack of interest in the substance of policy. I mean, I guess I think I had some view of the Obama administration that it was somehow, you know, like an extended engagement with Vox, you know, the, the website. Hmm. Um, and it was, well, <laughs> that wasn't quite there. Do you think that's sort of genuinely representative of what these people were doing? Or, or do you think that perhaps they have their eye on, on what the public wants from their books and, and they're perhaps wanting to play down the technocratic side? Well, that's a good question. It depends. I mean, I think there were some more serious people, but honestly, some of the more serious ones were still sort of suffused with this kind of banality. I mean, I was, for example, I was expecting Ben Rhodes's memoir. He was one of the top national security people in the mm. Obama White House and administration. And I was expecting that to be, um, you know, a much more sort of substantive, serious engagement based on, you know, some of the reviews I had read and his reputation. He's supposed to be one of the smart ones in the administration. And again, I, I found a kind of very similar pattern. If it is true that this is how they think about the public, that also tells you something, I think, quite important about the, just the disconnect between the sort of self-styled uh, wonkery of their governance and and how they view the politics. But I actually don't think in the end that that's really the case. I think this was a pretty good window on, on how they think about things. I mean, you, you mentioned some of the cultural touchstones of these people, and, and you say that Harry Potter and, and especially the West Wing loom large for them. I mean, regarding the latter, I mean, is there a sense that they are almost sort of playing the roles of people in the West Wing, <laughs> that they are trying to appear as if they are these sort of policy wonks when they're actually something quite different. Yeah, I mean, they. I was pretty glancing about this uh, in the original draft. I think I had this much more extended discussion of the West Wing. They actually would have conversations with each other where they would imagine themselves as different characters on the West Wing. Now, I've never seen the West Wing, um, so I don't know what these references are. Hmm. Um, I suppose I probably should have watched a couple of episodes in order to really kind of, you know, go, go full, you know, character acting into all of this, but they really do identify not just with the West Wing and the overall gestalt, which was very clear, but also with different characters and they would talk to each other. I mean, it kind of reminded me of, you know, how after the Sopranos came out, you know, the TV show, apparently there was, you know, FBI was recording mob conversations where they would, you know, imagine themselves as different characters. The mob would, you know, in, in the Sopranos, mm. um, somehow that seems a little bit more exalted, frankly, than <laughs> the people in the White House, you know, thinking, am I like the Martin Sheen actor or am I like, you know, Rob Lowe or this one or that one? I mean, honestly, it was. I think this has actually become a, a bit of a topic amongst lefties, which I haven't really been a part of. But so I feel a little sheepish, sort of raising it at this late a date. But it was, it was really stunning. I mean, and not just that. You know, there were a couple of books. One book was called West Wingers, and it mm. was a thirty sort of mini memoirs of different people in the Obama administration. 
And, you know, they all talk about it. Another book was called West Winging It. And so I think sometimes, you know, people in the center and liberals think that, you know, lefties are obsessing too much about the West Wing syndrome amongst these people. But we're not making this up. They really are obsessed with the West Wing. It's very important to them and their self-understanding. I mean, a couple of them say, you know, they were inspired by the West Wing. I first saw the West Wing when I was 12. And ever since then, I wanted to do this. You know, it's... It's a big part of their, you know, their build on. So when it comes to the Obama administration itself, do they view the administration as essentially a story of success or, or a qualified success? And how much does the, the rollback of the more positive aspects of Obama's legacy, such as it, such as it was, how much does that sort of color their view? That's a really good question. My sense of them is that they essentially believe that there's an amazing lack of self-scrutiny in these memoirs, actually, even mm. by the standards of, of of political people. Overwhelmingly, they think they did pretty much everything right, and everything that goes wrong, they blame on other people. Oftentimes, Republicans in Congress, which, you know, for understandable reasons, but oftentimes other Democrats as well, you know, the, the sort of the, some of the more moderate Democrats or some of the Democrats who they think miscalculated things. And again, this was actually a huge surprise because I think my sense of at least Obama was that this was somebody who was an extraordinarily introspective, self-critical, self-analytical president as an individual. And, you know, I guess you have some sense that that kind of filters down into the staff, but there was remarkably little self-criticism. So, the answer to your question, the long-winded answer to your question, is that, is that I think they think they were a success and that they overcame you know, overwhelming odds and that to the degree that they never did succeed, it was the fault of other people. And, you know, they even, you know, a couple of them will blame uh, 2016, you know, they'll, they'll be pretty forthright and, and frank about the failures of the Clinton campaign. Hmm. So there's very, there's a disconnect between what they think they did and what they think they didn't do, and what came after them. However, having said all that, I do think the shadow of what came after, you know, hangs heavy over all of these memoirs, and you can tell that they're very keen to try to salvage what they can from what they did in the face of Trump, and and hope that it will provide a resource for undoing, you know, Trump in the end. In terms of them feeling like they did the right thing, I mean, is that in some sense... You know, they, they feel like they did the right thing by their own lights in terms of the Republicans went low and we stayed high. You know, we didn't reduce ourselves to their level. And, I, you know, I wonder how much the question of civility and just being polite kind of factors into their uh, self-perception of what doing the right thing is. Yeah, I mean, they have a very exalted, I wouldn't even just say civility and polite. I talk a little bit about, about this in this piece. They, they have this very exalted sense of state and public service, almost I found kind of wince-inducing because it, it, it seems so corny and canned and yet very sincere. The majesty of the office, right? Yes, uh, but very sincere on their part. I mean, mm. these people are really patriots to their core. Now, I guess on the one hand, that's not surprising. They were staffing the, the presidency <laughs> after all. But there's just, again, this sort of remarkable lack of, I mean, e Obama, you know, who I think had a kind of exalted sense of state, was more 
ironic and and a more sense of distance of himself from the office than these people do. Mm. So, you know, for many of them, you know, this was a lifelong dream. You know, they, they, they've been working for this since they were, you know, four years old or something like that. And so it's, it's less, again, civility and a kind of, I mean, they're, they're definitely big on manners and all that, but it's part of a larger sort of politics of, yeah, as you say, the exaltation of the American state and, it's interesting. I mean, I, to be honest with you, because that sense of the state is something that, at least since the Cold War, I've really associated more with the neoconservatives. I wouldn't say all conservatives, but at least neoconservatives. Hmm. But I think the Obamanots could really match the neoconservatives. They could go head to head for them into who who valorizes and exalts the state more, because the Obamanots definitely it's it's a real passion it's a romance of the american state it's interesting that point isn't it because i mean again returning to the idea of these people as as policy wonks i mean you you say in the article you know these are not sort of cold-blooded technocrats they are hugely emotionally uh you know libidinally uh invested in this whole thing oh absolutely i mean i don't have you know i I should have pulled down from the shelves i packed these books away when i was done with them hoping (laughs) never to have to crack them open again um (laughs) But I probably should have pulled them down. You know, there's just, you know, passages which the editors, you know, made me take out because it was it seemed too cruel. But, you know, they're just overflowing um, with this emotion and kind of this ejaculations of excitement over this. And I was struck by that as well. Another surprise, you know, was just how unmodulated mm-hmm. they were in their sort of sensibility. And libidinal was really the word that seemed best for that. I mean, there were some very funny moments in the review. I mean, I posted the story you have in there of Ben Rhodes, who you've already mentioned, the Deputy National Security Advisor, his reaction to 9-11, where he goes down, talks to an army recruiter about maybe signing up and then thinks, no, actually... I'll be serving my country in a, in a far more effective way if I join a think tank in, in D.C. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I posted this on Twitter, and I think, and, and a lot of the reactions were quite angry. You know, people were sort of furious about this. And, you know, you can understand why. But it's also a remarkably kind of funny in its absence of, oh, yeah. of self-awareness. Oh, yeah. No, it was hysterically funny. I mean, and that's, I guess... You know, America is the, is the land where irony goes to die. I mean, we don't really have a sense in this country of, of, of that very much. And these people really don't have a sense of it, um, <laughs> you know, because he reports this story. And, you know, you, you left out, I mean, you know, he was actually training to be a, a fiction writer before he became who he became. Hmm. And so there's there's elements in the in the memoir where you know he's clearly trying to, you know, uh, f- flex his writerly muscles. And so he includes a detail that he goes to meet this recruiter from the army after 9/11, but he, you know, he says he meets him under the Queensboro Bridge, which is a bridge connecting Manhattan to Queens hmm. over the East River. And it's it's such a detail you know, that you, the kind of thing you would learn in an MFA program, teach, you know, sort of young creative writers. It just, it, it cracked, but it, but it's so, um, it's so serious, you know, it's the detail that's meant to kind of pad out the drama and the gravitas of the entire situation, but never, never aware of the punchline, which is, as you said, you know, going to this think tank and and they're, they're never aware of the punchline. They're never aware of how they are a punchline. They report this stuff, and, and I really do stress this in all sincerity. That they, this is these are mm. genuine convictions and emotions and beliefs that they are conveying with 
absolutely not an ounce of sense of irony. How much does, you know, these attitudes, particularly towards the state and the presidency, how much are those also present on the, the sort of insurgent American left? I mean, is it, is it a sort of situation where the two wings of the party can sort of barely comprehend each other because one wing just doesn't feel this kind of awe-inspired uh, yeah. fealty to, to the office of the presidency? Or in fact, does it actually uh, translate across to, to an extent? No, I think you. I think it's the first, and I think that's mm. a very astute observation. I mean, I, I think there's a real, there's a fundamental clash, and it's not just. I mean, partially, some element is is style and aesthetic, obviously, but I think there's a much deeper one, which is, I think, for people on the left, the office of the presidency is associated, you know, and and the American state are associated with, you know, all kinds of imperial cruelty and mm. and and ghastliness you know um, I think it's very hard for people on the left who have any knowledge of American foreign policy to have that kind of passion of the American state which is hard which puts the left in a slightly awkward position because at the same time we all believe very strongly in the importance of the state in terms of taking on capital and so for many of us I wouldn't say all of us but for many of us there's this tension between on the one hand wanting the government to take on more of a role in the society and to be efficient and to be not efficient in the current service sense, but to be effective, I should say, really, Mm. and wanting all those things, wanting to make government work, believing in public transportation, believing in public education, but, you know, believing in publicly provided healthcare, all these kinds of things. And yet we don't have that passion for the American state. And, and, and to the extent that we see it, we see it in forms like this amongst these these uh, these Obama neoliberals or liberals, if you want to call them that. And with them, it just seems it seems religious and an exaltation. I mean, there's a I, I, there's a line in there where in the piece where I talk about the the killing of Osama bin Laden, mm. and which Obama, when he announces it in one of his speeches, he compares this. He puts it in a, a broader American pageant or pantheon of achievements that are foremost about the struggle for equality of all citizens. So in other words, you know, if you think of the women's movement, the civil rights movement, the workers' movement, immigrants' mm-hmm. rights, you know, Obama is seeing the killing of Osama bin Laden as parcel of that. And then you have Ben Rhodes, when he talks about it in his memoir, he says, nothing would ever feel this right again, which again is one of these cringe-inducing statements. Mm. But the reason I bring this up is that, you know, it was, I tweeted about this, just how bizarre these things were. And the response I got from Obama's partisans was, you know, yeah, I shouldn't I, have I been saw, I saw some of that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They were, you know, they, they were, they were outraged and ranging from, we should never be ashamed, which of course I wasn't saying you should be ashamed of killing Osama bin Laden, but you certainly shouldn't be having, you know, this kind of ecstatic transport, you know, sort of transport into states of ecstasy. But but to other people saying, yeah, this was great. I was really happy then. And, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, I, I, this is all a long way of saying that I do think there's a fundamental disconnect between the insurgent left where, you know, we, we don't feel a sense of ecstatic transport over, you know, acts of state like that. And yet we do very strongly believe in the importance of the state as an instrument. On Rhodes's comment of nothing ever feeling so right as that, as that moment of the extrajudicial killing of Osama bin Laden, do you think that is also 
I mean, to a large extent, what that might be about is that centrist Democrats so much, you know, they, they, they seem to play the political game by the rules of the Republican Party. So this is kind of a moment where they get to look tough in the eyes of the enemy. And that for them is, is it's almost as if they can, they can relax about the sort of vague embarrassment they feel about being on their side of the divide, you know, of being sort of soppy liberals. You know, they can say, look, we're mm-hmm. tough. We took this guy out and, and, and indulge in that kind of quite, you know, very sort of macho sort of chauvinist rhetoric. I used to think that about these people. And I think there was a moment in time when that was true. I mean, the 1970s liberal Democrat was, you know, a, not anti-imperial, but was a, a very different, you know, entity mm. from the Democrat of today, the liberal Democrat of today. And, you know, it was still reeling from Vietnam and the revelations of Watergate and spying on Americans. And there was the be- an incipient critique of the American warfare state, for lack of a better word. That at times, you know, even among mainstream Democrats could go pretty far. So the backlash against that, I think, produced what you're talking about. But but we're now a generation or so removed. And these a lot of these people are 9-11's children. Mm. And I think it went much deeper for them. I think in the same way that Trump, you know, really came as a shock. 9-11 came as a real shock. You know, imagine you're a much younger person. You're living in the 1990s in Clinton's America. You you know, you don't even have much of a memory of the Soviet Union. Mm. The Cold War is over. And you think of American foreign policy as being benign at that moment and, yeah. and having always been more or less benign. Yeah, yeah. And, and more than benign. I mean, you know, you, you think the triumph in the Cold War, you know, the, the whole memory of the kind of the grisliness of that battle is gone. Mm. And then this thing happens, and I think it was a shock to many people, and I think we're still living with that shock, and I think it went very deep with this group of people in particular. So I don't think they're posing as tough. I think the one reactive element to the Republican Party is not the toughness part of it. It's more the coolness of it. And I don't mean cool like they – I mean uh, the the kind of – not not cool in the sense of fashionable, but cool in the sense of rational – and that's what they probably pride themselves on more. I mean, of course, their prose always betrays them. You know, they can't contain the, the their excitement. But nevertheless, I think they think of, you know, that they were the calm, steely, cool calculators, almost Weberian actors mm. who were coldly applying a calculus of violence, not in a kind of an extravagant way, the way they think the Bush people did, but in a much more instrumental and rational way. So I think that has a kind of element of, of posture about it. Mm. But I think the actual commitment to the power of the American state and its exaltation and exercise of that kind of power in the killing of terrorists, drone strikes and all the rest of it, I think that's all, I think that's all quite genuine for them. Going back to the question of legacy, I mean, at, at this point, what, what do you think we should see as the, the defining legacy of the Obama presidency? You know, I don't think I can answer that question, honestly. I, I you know, it's it's kind of like the French Revolution. It's too soon to tell. But I, I go through the different possibilities. And I do think one thing that we will look back upon is the Obama generation, actually, of these younger leftists, you know, who a lot of whom I've spoken to, who were genuinely galvanized by the election of Obama in 2008. They really saw this as a kind of a redemptive moment of promise, not just on questions of race, but of a kind of really breaking with the sort of the, the fetidness of the Bush years and, and the Clinton years in their minds. 
And I think they saw Obama as a genuinely kind of revolutionary, transformative actor. Mm. And, you know, a close reading of his speeches reveals, which I, you know, did for this, uh, that that was, of course, not the case. But there were reasons why they believed that. And I think for them, Obama was a tremendous disappointment. And then coupled with the financial crisis and the growing climate crisis, I think this is a whole generation of younger people. I mean, they're, they're adults, but they're younger than I am, for whom they feel there's increasingly no future. So you have that collision between a president who seemed like he was going to inaugurate a new kind of future and the reality for, the, for many people, which is that, in fact, the future has been closed off. Mm. Uh, and I think it's that collision that has been producing this you know, really you know, major transformation on the left. And I think ultimately people are going to trace that back to Obama. And that might be, in fact, his, that might be, I, again, I just don't know, one of his most important legacies. Uh, what I call in the piece, you know, productive disappointment. In terms of the other legacies of his of, of his presidency, I mean, there's obviously, you know, just the fact of, of him being the first black American president. And I think on the left, you know, it can be it, it can be quite easy to be cynical about that and say, well, this is just symbolism. It doesn't doesn't mean very much. But obviously, symbols are important and, it, and it's important in terms of people's self-perception of themselves, you know, how, how black Americans felt about just the fact of that being a, a black president. Also, the, the raising of expectations and, and the extent to which the Obama presidency, even though he may not have been particularly progressive on, on questions of race, nonetheless may have, you know, sort of raised expectations, which then fed into the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Um, so, I mean, how, so how do you evaluate that, that question? I think that's huge. And I think it actually goes almost significantly beyond some of the points you're raising here, quite rightly. You know, this country, you know, and continues to wrestle with, obviously, the question of race and, you know, what often gets called identity politics. And Nikhil Singh is a professor at NYU, and he's made this point, And I think it's, I think it's persuasive was that Obama gave a glimpse of a different kind of coalition. He was quite conservative in many ways, but I think he really cracked the nut, um, for lack of a better word, of this, what had been this ongoing tension in the Democratic Party, you know, between, you know, the alleged white working class and African-Americans and people of color. And I think actually Obama was quite good at threading that needle. Mm. Where he was less good was in matching it to an economic program. But I think he actually showed people that it's possible to create a coalition a genuinely multiracial coalition, not one that's necessarily going to you know, appeal to a majority of whites, but one that could create a majority coalition. Hmm. And I think a lot of what we're seeing today on the, the, more, the more left parts of, uh, of the Democratic Party and outside is you know, a real desire to create a kind of multiracial, multicultural social democracy, not to have to have this you know, foolish kind of class versus race debate but to try to really understand how they come together and to build a kind of a new coalition. And in a way, you know, this harkens back in some ways to the New Deal. People forget this, but the New Deal wasn't just a, a kind of, you know, a, a coalition, you know, oriented around questions of labor. It also created what we think of as modern ethnic America. I mean, Jews became a part of it. Italian Americans became a part of it. Irish Americans, Polish Americans, you know, you think of the, the film On the Waterfront. Mm. or Marlon Brando, you know, some of the Hollywood icons, they would have been inconceivable prior to the New Deal. 
So the New Deal really created a kind of sense of America as a kind of ethnically pluralist. I mean, it's white ethnic pluralism, we should stress. It's, but these were groups that had previously not been conceived of to be part of the kind of American pageant. And likewise, I think Obama began to set out the possibility of a, of a new imagination of America that would include new generations of uh, people of color. And now we're seeing, you know, people like Rashida Tlaib and, and AOC and these new generations of members of Congress, Ilhan Omar, you know, who are the kind of new faces of the left. And I, I, I think we're going to look back at Obama as that being one of his major contributions uh, is, is, is to show America and the left that it's, you, you know, you don't have to, sa- you, don't, you, you, can do, you can do this. Mm. You can create a genuinely multiracial, multicultural left that is the next step, which is a social democratic left. Towards the end of the piece, you talk about the, the, the kind of smallness of vision of the Obama presidency and how in some ways, it, you know, it was kind of a reaction to the extremely large scale sort of, you know, almost attempted world making of the of the George Bush presidency and in particular the invasion, invasion of Iraq. But I mean, in terms of the smallness of vision on the on the domestic side, I mean, to some extent, do you think it's it's it may not be fair to to lay that much blame at, at Obama's door in the sense that you know he didn't have a socialist mo- uh, a socialist movement holding his feet to the fire. You know, when he looked to 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 his left, there was there was you know very little there, and it's kind of unreasonable for us to expect him to have really gone that far. Yeah, I mean, this is you know the big question, and honestly, I don't know that I have the answer to it. I, I, I mean, I tend to think these things of what's possible, what's not possible. We we see them as kind of written in stone and it, it, it becomes almost a kind of Hegelian, the rational is real, the real is rational. It's like whatever he did do, that was the most he could do. Mm. And I I think the Abrams oral history complicates that to a, 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 based on the testimony of the, the, the participants themselves that I would query that a little bit, but there's no doubt it's true that, um, you know, this was, there wasn't quite a left movement, although, you know, the Occupy movement certainly happened and there were, there were certain rumblings, but I, but I think that, 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 that does, I mean, and this is why I really dwelt, dwelled, excuse me, so much on Obama's speeches, because that's, you know, those are not a reflection of, well, you can't get it past Congress, the control, you know, mm-hmm. the Republicans control it, the you know, blah, blah, blah. They do reflect his kind of, I think, deep philosophy. And that was um, that was the philosophy, and it obviously had a context to it, which is that you know this is how he presented himself to America. This is how he secured the nomination. But I think we forget that we tend to look at you know what seems like the more soaring rhetoric and just overlook how insistently small bore he oftentimes was, and that there was a real reason for that that transcended the power that the Republicans had, say, in Congress. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.